Last week's episode was incredibly powerful, and so is part two of the story of Dawn Kohler, author of the memoir, The Messages. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. Dawn had to be very brave to tell her story, and I am so grateful she was willing to share it here with me and with you. These days, she's an in-demand executive coach who specializes in helping her clients reawaken their purpose and their passion. And who better than Dawn to be their guide, since she had to turn herself inside out through extensive psychotherapy to discover a past that was so painful, her mind didn't let her remember it until she was in her 30s. Her testimony in this interview is not graphic, but it is brutally honest. So if you have children nearby who might hear this interview, this is not for their ears. So wait until you're alone or with some other adults to listen. To get you up to speed with the story, Dawn started receiving inaudible messages right around her own daughter's fifth birthday. And these messages became constant and debilitating. She was unable to work and she became severely depressed. During guided meditation, Dawn uncovered the fact that she had been raped at five by her own father. She developed a deep bond with Anne, her first psychotherapist. And in part two, we talked about a dependency that can develop between the patient and the therapist when the therapy leaves you shattered and in a pool of tears. It's kind of like a slippery slope, right? People that have been abused and abandoned, people that have suffered this kind of trauma in their childhood, we think we're a lot more put together than we actually are because we had to be. So we've got this wonderful bravado almost that we can walk into a therapist's office and they're not going to mess with me because I've got it together. I've been taking care of myself since I was five and I'm okay here. She's not going to get the better of me. What we don't recognize and what I certainly didn't recognize is how wounded I was Mm. and that when I became vulnerable, how needy I would become because I had lived thinking, I don't need anybody. And you believe that lie. The problem with believing the lie is when you do become vulnerable, you start to understand what dependency really means. And it's very easy to be reabused yes. by scenarios, by well-intended people. We just are not connected to the parts of ourselves that could potentially really get re-injured. Judith was your second therapist yes. and she took over when Anne left yeah. and she had a very different style, didn't she? She did. Talk a little bit about that. <laughs> Love Judith. Judith was very to the point. You know, the relationship with Anne was one where I just deeply loved her. She was truly the first maternal bond I ever made. I don't think I ever made one with my mother. Uh, I don't think my mother was capable of it, but Anne was. For most therapists would say she crossed some boundaries when she held me. I was a broken five-year-old rape victim. I needed her to hold me. Mm. So I have no regrets in that. And again, I think the universe sends us what we need. Exactly, exactly. So I don't think Anne was seasoned enough to understand the depths of the relationship that we were in, and I don't think she knew how to handle it. Uh, I think that was one of the catalysts that made her leave. And then Judith came in to say, hey, you're getting re-abused here. Again, you know, I think Anne was very well intended. I, I don't think Anne would have ever 
ever want or imagined or, or tried to reabuse me, but the situation was reabusing me. I was abandoned again by this mother that I loved and wasn't there for me. And then the worst of the memory started coming out. Right. Everybody in this story is wounded. Everybody. And what's really interesting about you saying that is that we all are wounded. Right. Nobody gets through life right. without bruises. Right. Some of them, obviously, worse than others. Right. Let's take a minute, and I, I just want to let the audience know that throughout this story, Dawn, you were able to be a good mom to your three kids. And if you were able to do anything in this life, that was so important because they never lost you in the process. They may have missed you when you were at the therapist's office and when you were laying in bed and feeling sad, but by God, you got yourself up and you did what you could. And I just, from a mother's perspective, I want to tell you how much I thought, my God, I, I would be catatonic in a corner, incapable of moving with all of these memories, but you did it. The kids kept me alive. There's no doubt about it. I just remember even when Jen was born and I was nursing her and feeling my heart open for the first time, truly open. I literally had the conscious thought, it's finally safe to love. I never wanted my kids to have the experience that I had. I was extremely determined and devoted to being present. It's very hard to be present when you are in that kind of mm. deep depression, going through memories. I was having flashbacks. One of the kids would start crying. I didn't know if it was them or me. I mean, it was really a difficult time because, you know, Jen is five, all this happened at five. So I'm flipping back and forth from being 33 and five years old. I just wanted to be to the extent that I could. And I, I'm sure I dropped the ball on several occasions, but my heart and soul and to this day is I want to be there for them. Part of the healing for me, was to give them what I didn't have. Yes, and that's where I was just going to go, which is, and my story will save for another day, but I can tell you that as I raised my son and my daughter, and it all clicked when my daughter was born, do the opposite. Exactly. Do the opposite. Do the opposite. <laughs> do it. So it was, you know, she didn't hug, I hug. Right. I hug, I'm there. I connect. I'm available. I'm sober. I am present. Yes. I, yes. you know, I, I am imperfect. Absolutely. There were plenty of times I wasn't perfect, but God knows I tried my best with every move to be there for And them. props to Jeff at that time in your life too, because he held the kids together for Me sure. Too. Jeff is an amazing person. I, you know, I, I have a great relationship. We're no longer married to this day. He's been my date at both my daughter's weddings, and we have a great time. I love him. He Let's get back like into it where the next shoe drops. As if all of this were not enough, and you go through the realization of what happened to you at five at the hands of your father, you tell your mother, your mother and father don't believe you or are casting you aside. The voice inside your head, the messages now become there were others. And there couldn't have been a worse time because not only is this all happening, my parents are, this is false memories. They've basically cut me off. My brothers and sisters have all, we don't want anything to do with this. Anne tells me that she's leaving. And right before Anne left, I became aware that there was others. So it was the perfect storm. And within about 
a week of Anne leaving, the other memories began to emerge because it, by this time, once you start saying, I can handle this, and your mind starts to realize you can handle it, the process doesn't stop. It doesn't matter who stays or goes. The other men were friends of my father, well-known professional men, and it was a molestation group. So I was taken to parks and put in other men's cars and um, various different places I was taken to for that to happen. The one memory that came to mind when Anne left, actually, Judith, who's wonderful, said, you're going in an outpatient program just because I was so unsettled and unstable. The hardest part of the memory is that it crushed the idea that I was special to my dad. Even though the extent of it and the rape was horrible, there was some sick part of me that held on to, at least he loved me. But then when your father hands you off to be molested by another man and walks away, there is such a profound sense of I am worthless. I am nothing. I am discarded to be abused by this other grown person. And that just shattered me. That was perhaps the lowest of the low. Following the painful path of these memories Mm -hmm. required so much courage for you. What did you learn about the deepest part of who you are by going through all of this? It's funny because people have said that to me so many times. You're courageous. I never think of myself as courageous. I always think of myself as, are you kidding me? I'm terrified. Because what motivated me was I can't stand to be in this fear anymore. Mm. I can't stand to feel this shame anymore. I can't stand that I am not 100% present with my kids. I need to get better so I can raise them. So I'm not sure if I think of it as courage as much as I think of it as sheer guttural determination that I knew that this was all for a reason and I, I was so steadfast in that. I knew in the depths of my soul, all of this has a reason. I'm being led for a reason and my kids are here to support me and Jeff through this so I can get to the other side. But I never doubted that this was all very much for a purpose. At one point, The messages are, write the book, return to your passion. When I received them, write the book, I thought, what What am I I supposed to write a book about, you know? And I was so far away from, you know, my original thought of being a journalist. And it wasn't until I was far down the path and Judith looked at me one day and she said, and I got the message again, write the book. And I go, Judith, I keep getting this message. She goes, write the story you're living. This is incredible. (laughs) As you worked through all of this, one of the things that I learned a lot from in the messages in your book, Dawn, was the work you did with Tai Chi Mm -hmm. and the idea that muscle tension holds our feelings. Mm -hmm. And I'm fascinated by that. The body is the mind. It is all one big mind. Every cell is intelligent. And when we were doing the Tai Chi work, which again was one of those things that 
just, you know, when you're on these journeys, people pop up. And this was a, a Tai Chi teacher at the beach at the time when I had just gotten out of the hospital and was like, what do I do, need to do next? And we walked down. And I, I don't know if you recognized who the people were, but uh, I walked down to the beach and it was shortly after Nicole Brown Simpson had been murdered and her mother and sister and a friend of theirs were doing Tai Chi on the beach. I waited till the class was over and then I walked up to the instructor. Of course, <laughs> Denise, the sister, confronted me first just to make sure I wasn't you know, a journalist or something. And after she and I connected and she knew that, no, I was just a local, she also invited me, he invited me. And so I began doing these Tai Chi courses on the beach with Browns during the trial, during the OJ trial. And what all of us learned, I mean, it was really interesting as we would go through these motions, he would put us in positions that would fatigue the muscles. And when you fatigue the muscles, there's a trembling and then often underneath it, there would be an emotion. And the emotion that was held in that muscle would be free to come into our chest. And you could literally feel it as it come, would come into your chest. And I would just start crying. And sometimes it came with a memory. Sometimes it came with a deep feeling. But as we're sitting in these poses with our arms stretched out for 10, 15 minutes, I'm trembling, Denise is trembling, her mother's trembling. And as I was crying, I could see them crying. So they were having their own experiences of grief. I was having mine. But it was so clear that the tension in your body, once fatigued, will release and allow you to emote it so you're not carrying it any longer. When I hear you talk about the messages, and obviously that's the title of your book, is that the same thing as intuition? Talk to me a little bit about that. Intuition is a part of it. But when this started, when it first began, and I woke up that morning and I had that feeling in my chest and every cell was saying, you're receiving a calling. That's when the journey began. And during the journey, I did receive messages that were prescriptive in a sense that they gave me the direction. Here's what to do next, or stay open for this, or you need to know the truth about your father before I had received that information. And that probably was my own higher self or intuition that was taking me on this path of cleansing. When you, we have these journeys, the awakening journeys, it's not all love and light. You really do go through a process or a cleansing. So the three years that this book took place, those three years taught me how to love more deeply by putting me in circumstances that caused me to do so. And it released all of the things in my body, truly in my muscles and, and mind that kept me from knowing my own light or from connecting with the greater light of this universe. As it continued, particularly towards the end, I started to feel like this was more universal. And so did Judith at the time. And it was pretty clear that I was going beyond my individual consciousness into a collective consciousness, if you will. It was also very clear that this was going to lead to some sort of divine encounter. Now, again, I didn't have any background for this. And a divine encounter truly scared me because to me, it was a power greater than myself. And I had only known pain and rejection from a power greater than myself. So for that to be any kind of benevolent experience 
was not within my playbook <laughs> and it was truly terrifying. Terrifying. So we're getting closer and closer to this encounter. I had gone through what was explained to me as a kundalini experience where there is a spiritual energy that embeds itself in the spine of our back. And when it's released, it goes through the chakra system and opens up our consciousness. It's actually quite a terrifying experience because as these chakras open, which are energy systems in our body, you feel extreme emotion. And then you go into extreme love as it opens the heart. Like the Dalai Lama is able to do. Exactly. Right, Dawn? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And when it gets up into that third chakra. Uh, the crown. Crown. I could see where everybody, I was at, at a beach at the time running, trying to course, get the energy out of my body. Everybody was a part of me. My ego boundary was gone. And I was suddenly in this immense sense of love as I became awakened to the truth that we are all connected. And the message came through me, but it was not words that I would have ever used. And that first night said that it was the dawn of a new consciousness, that we would receive everything that we needed, but the beginning has begun. So it was very much, I experienced it as an announcement that this has started. In the second, night, the same experience. I was woken up at 3 a.m., same time, and the same images, the same experience in my head. And that night, it was very much the announcement that it's a new time and that there would be people that are in your churches and synagogues that carry the light, that the healers were here now. And to return to your healers, and that one would not be of him or me, it was, but it was the, the third person of God, and to not follow judgment. So the whole thing was do not follow judgment, do not follow judgment, and it was emphasized several times to me. Somebody is going to emerge that will have prejudice, and it is very clear to not follow prejudice. It will only hurt us, and it will cause mass destruction. So that night, subsided with the message that we would get all that we needed to change our individual consciousness by choice and to learn to love now. Did you feel chosen after this happened? Because for someone who spent her life feeling unworthy, that feels like such a chosen message, almost like a disciple or... Yes, I knew what it was. I knew that it was prophecy. I knew where it had come from. I did, and, and I'll tell you the third night in a minute, I did afterwards go, you know, just a big wow, that's what this has been all about. And I did feel chosen, and I felt very burdened. <sighs> very burdened. And the third night? The third night, I was awoken, same experience. But before I was told to write, I was shown a vision. And it was a terrible apocalyptic scene. I could just see millions and millions of people around the world rapidly ascending. They were perishing in droves. I couldn't tell what, I couldn't tell how. It was just this horrible, horrible apocalyptic scene of mass destruction of some sort. And I was terrified. As much fear as I've felt in my life, this is the, the most terrified I've ever felt. I was literally crawled up in a little ball 
And then that voice came in and it said, this is not necessary. There is time for a peaceful change. There is time to avoid this apocalyptic ending. There is time for a gentle change. And I was so relieved by that. And the, the grandeur of it all is, it's hard to even talk about because I recognize how unrelatable this is, but it was the realest thing that has ever happened to me. When you experience something like this, and then you go out into the world the next day and go to the grocery store, it must feel wacko. <laughs> I mean, that's the best I can come up with because you've seen things nobody else has seen. It's difficult on so many levels. Like I said, it feels like, okay, I got these messages. Do I feel chosen? Yes. yes. Do I feel burdened by it? I don't feel special as much as I feel, what a responsibility. Yes. What an incredible responsibility. What to, am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? That was the next big question in my mind. I took them to the therapist. I showed them to Judith. Judith's like, it is what it is. You just got these messages. Those it are is the messages. what it is. She said, go put it in the book you're supposed to write. Yes. So I did that. And again, it's just, you put them in the book. You get the book out. You hope people not just read the book, but you hope people understand that we're in a time where what we do and what we say matters and the impact we have matters and the relationship we have with ourselves is so significant and we're given an opportunity. It was very clear to me that there is a window of time and we have begun. I want to talk about your new life. Hmm. <laughs> you wrote the book but you are also a very much in-demand executive coach, a life coach. Who better to guide others than a woman who has literally turned herself inside out to find the gold? Tell us about your practice. Our path often finds us. My first two clients, one was a CTO, chief technical officer, and a, a vice president of product. And I sat down with them, we got some feedback from the environment. We really talked about uh, what their behavior was and what the impact that it was having on the environment, often quite different than what their intentions were. And it just clicked. My first client, which was that CTO, I was sitting there. I'd given him some 360 feedback. He was in tears. It was so painful for him because it wasn't aligned with his intention. And at the end of that session, I thought, oh, I'm just this is hitting the sweet spot. I wouldn't have sought to do executive coaching. I, it wasn't really a thing back then, but it happened. And within about six months, I had a full practice. One of the things that you write about in this book, and I think this is the time to ask you about it now, is the hurdle of getting past the shame. Mm -hmm. How did you do that? Shame is such a difficult feeling to overcome. It is... I think one of the most pervasive emotions and it can get triggered. And to be honest, there's such so many remnants of this inside of you that you program so young. I can still get triggered to a feeling of shame. It doesn't entirely go away, but it doesn't paralyze me anymore. And I don't believe it's story. When 
I feel shame, I know that's an old feeling that doesn't really belong to me. It's an old story. It's an old story. It can still get triggered. It's like, okay, that's that. But it doesn't last very long. And again, and I don't believe it. There's nothing in me that is shameful. I, on the contrary, have done the right thing as difficult as the right thing has been. And it has been hard. Choosing truth is one of the most difficult things you'll do in your life. Final question. Right now, in this chapter in your life, what does success mean to you? Success to me is family. Everything else is great, and I hope to inspire people to take their journey. But at the end of the day, I came out of a family that was not connected, was not loving, was not reflective, and creating that for yourself, for the children you'll bring in the world, or for the grandchildren that you will have, is everything. Healing starts at home. Don Kohler, author of the book, The Messages. The website is donkohler.com. Thank you so much for sharing your story on the story behind her success. Thank you, Ken. Very much enjoyed your questions and your interview. Lots of wisdom there from Don Kohler, author of The Messages. You got to read the book. Check out her website, dawnkohler.com. D-A-W-N-K-O-H-L-E-R. If you or someone you love is experiencing this kind of abuse, text HOME to 741-741. This is the Crisis Text Line at crisistextline.org. And you can speak immediately to a volunteer crisis counselor. That's HOME to 741-741. This is Candy O'Terry saying thank you so much for listening. I'll have a fresh new episode for you next week. When we share our stories, we provide a roadmap for the next woman to follow. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it.